Hi, I'm LaDonna Humphrey. And I'm Alicia Lockhart. Welcome to Deep Dark Secrets, the podcast that shines a light in dark places. Today, we're going to talk about a solved murder case from the UK related to the death fetish community. It's the murder of Jane Longhurst. We learned of Jane Longhurst and her murder while we were doing research for our book, Strangled, the book that we co-authored about the death fetish community and its potential link to the unsolved murder case of Melissa Witt. So Jane was a beautiful 31-year-old from Brighton, East Sussex, on the southern coast of England. She was passionate about her career as a special education teacher. She had a really good life. She was just close with her mom. She was in a relationship that was going great. Her and her partner lived together. His name was Malcolm. She was also a very talented musician. She played the piano, the flute, and her favorite instrument to play was the violin. She also, in her spare time, ran a youth orchestra. So she just had a very full, beautiful life. She was vibrant. She was totally beloved. And people would describe her as smiley and kind-hearted. And she absolutely did not deserve to die. On Friday, March 14th of 2003, Jane's boyfriend Malcolm came home to their flat and he found it empty. Jane always had Fridays off, and so usually Jane would let Malcolm know if she planned to go anywhere, but she hadn't said that she was going anywhere. Malcolm had known that she made plans with her mom to go to a museum for that day, but then those plans had also been canceled. I think that her mom was not feeling well. So he really expected when he came home to find Jane there. And when she wasn't there, he was confused. So he called Jane's phone and her phone went straight to voicemail. So that was like the first red flag for Malcolm. He thought that was really strange since he couldn't think of anywhere she might be. He wound up calling her mom, Liz Longhurst. And Liz also had no clue of Jane's whereabouts. They did not, you know, change plans and get back together to go to the museum or anything like that. She hadn't heard from her. So she suggested that Malcolm maybe try to contact the youth orchestra and see if she had to go do something there. And he went ahead and did that, but Jane wasn't with them either. So he was looking around their flat and he didn't feel like anything was out of place. It didn't it didn't look strange at all. Her purse and her phone were gone, but that, you know, seemed normal enough like she probably just took them and went on some kind of errand or something. So at this point, it didn't look scary in their apartment. It didn't look like anything had happened to her, but nobody knew where she was. Nobody knew this at the time, but Jane would be found dead five weeks after her disappearance because she had fallen into the hands of a vile death fetisher named Graham Coots. It's a horrible story. It's just horrible can't imagine the fear the family was feeling Alicia during those moments of realizing that they couldn't find Jane. And I think the listeners should have a little bit of information about Graham Coots. He was born in 1968 and he was raised in Scotland. He struggled with academics, but he excelled in music 
And as a young boy, Graham had already discovered his own deep, dark secret. He had these perverted fantasies about strangulation, and he was obsessed with necks and all that went into asphyxiation. He confessed these fantasies, believe it or not, to his doctor when he was 15 years old. He even told his doctor, Alicia, that he was just so fearful of harming someone, but nobody did anything about it. That is insane to me that a young boy would say, like, have the bravery to bring that up with an authority figure and have them do nothing about it. Nothing. I don't know if it was shock or maybe they chalked it up to a psychiatric disorder that they were going to try to treat later. I mean, I don't think we're ever really going to know for sure, but that's just, it's frightening to me. But he eventually moved from Scotland to Brighton. And there he was in the artsy scene. He was an inspiring professional guitarist. He actually played music in pubs a few nights a week. And he worked for a cleaning company and worked as a window fitter. I, for whatever reason, find that to be extremely frightening in and of itself, because that's really what we're all going to experience as we learn about death fetish (laughs) and the people who are obsessed with it is that they're out doing normal jobs. They're out living seemingly normal lives amongst everyone else. Yeah, that means that he was in people's homes. <laughs> yeah, that that's that that part scared me a little bit. But you know, he didn't Graham didn't speak openly about these fantasies to his family and friends. You know, they didn't know. But mm-hmm. he did whisper these types of ideas and fantasies when he was in the, you know, the, in the bedroom with various partners because he would make requests of things that he wanted to do. In fact, an ex-girlfriend of Graham's said he had always been into strangulation. Everything that they did together always pointed to this was what he wanted as part of a sexual experience. And another partner said that Graham had told her, I get the most awful feelings that I'm going to strangle, kill, and rape a woman. That gives me chills. Yes. It's frightening. The same woman also claims that she had found a collection of pornographic images that belonged to Graham, and he had drawn nooses around the necks of the women in these images. So he was absolutely obsessed with the idea of strangulation. And I think he was actively searching out, you know, living out that fantasy any way that he could. And one of the main ways that Graham dealt with his fetish was by viewing and saving pornographic images off the internet. He would burn these CDs with his favorite images. And this was discovered, I guess he was doing this in 2001 and 2002. His web browser history revealed that he was a member of multiple, now get this, Alicia, multiple death fetish communities. And that doesn't surprise me. He was frequenting three death fetish websites. Uh, I guess they were his favorite and the names are just, they're just going to stun you. One was called hanging bit. One is death by asphyxia. And the other one you and I are very familiar with. It's called necrobabes. Yes. The infamous necrobabes. One of the first death fetish websites to be really popular online back in the late nineties. Not surprisingly, Graham paid for a monthly membership to necrobabes. That website, you know, offered 30, 40, 50 death fetish photos a week to its members. And Graham had thousands of pornographic images in this death fetish collection that he'd been seeking out on these forums. And the images that Graham 
had saved are awful. They were of women being strangled, women being suffocated, women being tortured. And the search terms are equally frightening because he was looking for content with very specific words of rape, murder, and necro. I really love to put myself in people's shoes. And it's scary to imagine he's thinking he's home alone. It's just him and his computer. And he's sitting down to look for what he really wants. Most of all, it frightens me to know that what someone wants to see most of all when they think nobody is watching is rape, murder, and necro. And when people are referring to necro in these communities, they're looking for necrophilia. They're looking for a sex act with a dead body. It's disgusting that he's looking up rape and murder on its own, but it's very clear to me that there was already an established desire. In those years you mentioned, I think you said 2001, 2002, he was already at that point wishing that he could experience a sex act with a dead body. Well, and I think it's important to add that these communities existed that he's visiting, that he's downloading these images, these very communities that say, oh, this is just fantasy. There's nothing real happening here. But the truth is, is that Graham was very real. He was a very real person that was obsessed with rape, murder, and necrophilia. And they were, these sites were scratching that itch for him. And I, I just think that's important to to point out. There's nothing innocent there. You can see, you can observe this escalation process from Graham being a vulnerable 15-year-old boy asking a doctor about these thoughts and fantasies that he has. There's several checkpoints in his life. He talks to the doctor, nothing happens. He's sharing this information with various girlfriends, sex partners, and it seems like there were multiple opportunities for him to be guided in a different direction, but for whatever reason, the people that he happened to share this information with, share these fantasies with, were accepting, open, encouraging, and I see this escalating to what we're about to talk about next, this chapter in his life where he decided to go ahead and make this real for himself after all these years of fantasizing about it. Graham has these fantasies. He's had them since he was young. And he's pretty deep into the world of death fetish, I would say, with these multiple accounts, you know, collections of thousands of pictures. So surprisingly, at this point in life, Graham has a girlfriend. And oh. it's it's a pretty serious relationship there with this woman named Lisa. They are living together. Lisa is pregnant with Graham's child. Oh, wow. And guess who Lisa's best friend is? It's Jane Longhurst. So Jane was not just abducted by some creepy stranger from across town. Jane was friends with Graham Coots. She was friends with Lisa. She was part of their day-to-day -day lives. And on that fateful Friday that Jane went missing, the last day that she was seen alive, she was having a pretty normal day. She picked up the phone and she called to talk to her friend Lisa. And Graham was the one who answered the phone. And he let her know that Lisa wasn't home. 
And they had a short conversation and they discovered that they both were kind of free for the afternoon. And they decided that they should maybe meet up and go swimming together. And so this wasn't out of the ordinary. They were both really active people. They were both in relationships. It sounds like all four of them got along pretty well. And it was normal for them to go do things together. So Jane hung up the phone and the plan was for Graham to come pick her up so that they could go get a workout together, go swimming. It really sounds like Jane trusted Graham from her just being not willing to go see him without Lisa or her partner being there. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I mean, she felt comfortable enough to make plans with him. Yeah. And I can't, from all the research that I've done on this case, I haven't been able to find anything about, I've been very curious about if Lisa knew about this fetish. And I, because I'm just a really curious person, but I think that if putting myself in Lisa's shoes, if I was dating Graham and I feel like she may have known about the fetish, but I can't find any confirmation of that. But I would imagine if Lisa knew about this fetish of Graham's, I just wonder if she had ever told that to Jane or if that was like a very secret thing in their relationship. But I really believe that Jane likely did not know this about Graham. I tend to think that she probably did not. I don't think that most people would feel like they want to spend time with someone who is obsessing about strangulation and rape and necrophilia. Maybe that's just me, but Lisa's already in this relationship with Graham. You know, she's expecting his child. She somewhat is probably in disbelief, and this is just my opinion, or maybe downplays that, but I wouldn't think that would be something they would openly share with friends and that those friends would be accepting of. When the police traced Jane's phone record, they saw that the last call she had made was to Lisa and Graham's flat. And so they were, of course, very interested in what happened during this last phone call that she had made. And they interviewed Graham and Lisa and discovered that Graham was the last person she had spoken to. But Graham was not honest initially with the police about them making plans to meet up or talking about swimming. He said that she simply called to ask if Lisa was home and that when Lisa wasn't there, they exchanged, you know, just some like short surface level conversation and that that was it. And so the police didn't think anything of that at first. And they believed what he said to be true. And they kept searching other avenues, trying to figure out what could have happened to her. They believed she left the house to go do something and they just didn't know what. So in reality, Graham had really made plans with Jane and he did follow through with them. He did go pick her up. And Here's the story that Graham finally tells people after he's been arrested. He says that Jane became emotional in his car, but he doesn't say what she was emotional about. He just says she was crying and that he decided that it wasn't going to be a good time for them to go swimming, that he wanted to tend to her. So he says that he took her back to his flat and he was just comforting her, hugging her, trying to talk her through whatever was making her emotional. He says that Jane fell into his lap 
and that eventually they started kissing and that things got sexual. That part strikes me as odd. What do you think about that, LaDonna? Does that seem normal? None of it seems normal. My mind automatically goes to why was she emotional in the car? What did he say to her? What had happened? Did he already make a pass at her? You know, we knew just from the research that we've done into this case that he was obsessed with rape and necrophilia and those things. And this seems to me, you know, smacks of a hallmark rape case. Maybe she rejects him and then it goes south. I mean, do you think that's possible? I could totally see a scenario like that where something uncomfortable happened in the car and he took her to his place to keep control to uh, kind of try to figure out his next steps. Or maybe he had a plan the whole time. I find I also find it strange that they both are in these, you know, relationships that are serious, that up until this point, they had reported both of them, you know, looked happy in their long term relationships. I do believe Jane was truly happy in her relationship. And I don't understand how things could get sexual like that. Seems like there would need to be a buildup or some sort of erosion to this connection turning into a sexual affair for the two of them. And there just doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence of that anywhere else. Nobody else had knowledge of that. There's no like text message records or phone records or anything of them having an affair with each other. I automatically think that there was some sort of buildup perhaps in Graham's mind. This entire time, maybe Graham is thinking about some attraction that he has to Jane. And he had built this up in his mind because we know he's into fantasy. And maybe he had been fantasizing about Jane for a very long time. And that this was one of the scenarios that he had fantasized about. That seems completely plausible to me that all of this was happening in this realm of fantasy in his mind. That's a good point. So diving back into his story, during the sexual aspect of this encounter, he says to Jane, do you want to try something new? (laughs) And then he pulls out a pair of nylon pantyhose and wraps them around her neck. And he says that he had her face the other direction from him so that he could masturbate and like tighten the pantyhose on her neck while he was doing that. And he says that he pleasured himself to completion and that it was, he was immersed in the feeling of it. He was pulling on the nylons. He had his eyes closed. He, he had an orgasm. And when he opened his eyes, he said that he found Jane just limp and lifeless there. And that the whole thing was just this tragic consensual accident between the two of them. Um, I'm shaking my head. No, no, I I don't believe that for, for a moment. And I would like to just kind of point out one of the reasons why I don't, they're in the middle of this supposedly consensual sexual encounter. And he just happens to pull out some nylons that he's brought with him to wrap around her neck. They're in the flat that he has with Lisa. So it's, possible that he just dug through Lisa's clothing and found that. But we know that he's obsessed with strangling and asphyxiation. So it's more likely that he had his special (laughs) tools on hand and he was in his own bedroom at this time. So that part doesn't strike me as super odd. I think he probably always has pantyhose in his bedroom because he's obsessed with that. To me, the part that stands out about this story that seems off is like 
when you're having a consensual sexual experience with somebody, how much fun would that be for Jane to have to turn and face the other way and let somebody masturbate on top of you? Like, what was she getting out of that? (laughs) Well, I think that his story is bogus is what I think. And I don't believe that that's how her murder occurred at all. I think that story is to minimize what Graham did, what his intent was. I believe his intention was murder from the moment he realized that he was going to see Jane that day. No, he didn't know she was going to call that day. So it feels like it was probably a very opportunistic moment for him. I want to go back to just the idea that this could even be an accident. And again, I put myself in, in that scenario If they truly were having a consensual experience and he had just somehow kept his eyes closed as she died like that without realizing that anything was going wrong, if he opened his eyes and saw her like that, LaDonna, what do you think the average person would do in this situation? I think they would panic. I think he would try to revive her. He would call 911. He would he would do everything he could in his power to to save her life. A truly innocent person would be freaking out in that moment that they would take the nylons off her neck, try to prop her up, try to do CPR or whatever they could to get her breathing. But that is not at all what Graham Coots, the fetisher, did. He did not even bother to remove the nylon stockings from Jane's neck. Wow. When her body was eventually found... Five weeks later, she still had those nylons wrapped around her neck. That screams not an accident to me. Yeah, because if he like was trying to revive her and took them off, there's no way he would put them back on. They remain there, and I don't believe he ever took them off. I don't believe he tried to check her vitals and save her. No, I don't. I don't believe that either. That just further confirms in my mind that Graham murdered Jane and had every intent of doing so that afternoon when they were together. I think so too. And there were even some other uh, pieces of evidence that pointed to this being a murder rather than an accident too. So there was a t-shirt. The t-shirt that he was wearing that day was recovered. And there was blood on the arm of the t-shirt. And it was her blood. And what this indicated to police is that they believe Jane was facing Graham while she was being strangled against her will and that uh, she had coughed up blood onto his shirt. So that really doesn't fit with his story. If she had truly been strangled facing the other way, there wouldn't be blood on any of his upper body clothing. Wow, absolutely not. No, that is definitely an indicator of his deception in this scenario of what happened to Jane. Another article of clothing was recovered that was a clue for the case, and it was Jane's pants. And the way that they were, they had been like peeled off of her, they think, because one pant leg was inside out. If she had taken her pants off for a consensual sex act, they don't think that they would have been flipped inside out like that. I don't think so either. That's a huge clue. Very indicative of a rape scenario, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's pretty uh, telling evidence there. So 
As if this case weren't already shocking and devastating and terrifying, there is more and it does get pretty gross. Graham is in his flat with the body of Jane. He eventually decides that what he's going to do is to go rent a storage unit under a fake name. He, he, so he goes and gets the storage unit and he puts Jane and her belongings and any of the evidence from the flat. He just goes ahead, tosses it in the storage unit. Wow. That's not an innocent person. Why, why rent the storage unit? Graham Coots has never been willing to really talk about what the deal was with the storage unit. He maintains that he had to get rid of the body, but there's some very interesting details around the storage unit. So Graham did keep Jane's body for a month, a whole month in the storage unit. And during this month, Jane is all over the local news. She is being listed as a missing person. There are people doing search parties everywhere. Just her family and friends are devastated. The police are all hands on deck trying to find her. Her family is on the news pleading with the public. And I'm sure Lisa, her best friend, is probably at home crying in Graham's arms about this, just worried sick for her best friend. Graham, he's not acting different. He's acting as if he's upset and worried and mystified as to where Jane could be. He's got her body in this storage unit. He goes and he visits the body in the storage unit. Multiple times. He went and visited the storage unit nine times. Oh, nine times. Mm -hmm. Wow. What was he doing in there? Only Graham knows what he was doing there in that storage unit. Even after his arrest, he will not tell anybody why he was going to the storage unit over and over again. He also has never said why he chose to keep her for so long. What we do know is that he had to eventually move her body because of how strong the smell had become. What that tells me is that he likely would have kept her as long as he could, but we know that he's interested in necrophilia. And we also know about his internet search history. And I think this paints a perfect picture of Graham and Graham's intentions. Because on March 13th of 2003, now this was the day before Jane was murdered, okay, he accessed death fetish websites called Necrobabes and Death by Asphyxia. He remained on the Death by Asphyxia website for one hour and 45 minutes. So he was mm -hmm. really enjoying himself, whatever he was looking <laughs> at. I mean, that's a long time to be on a yeah. death fetish website. Then the very next day on March 14th, he murders Jane. To me, it was building up to that murder. I mean, he's really spending more and more time on these websites. He's really fixated and hopeful that he can make something like this happen in his real life. That's what I believe. I mean, he just, it's obsession. And between March 14th and March 24th, you know, he didn't access any death fetish websites. What? None. To me, that says he was satisfied. He had finally satisfied that itch he was never able to scratch. You know, at least through the 14th and the 24th. There was no need for him to go to these websites to look at this fantasy because he had lived it out finally in his life. So... During that time period, of course, he's not visiting those websites because he's 
visiting the storage unit. You know, it's oh, the- oh, yeah. I mean, there he is visiting Jane's body and being able to act out the very things that before he could only view. I think what's even more mind blowing, Alicia, is that during this time period, he, he goes to visit Jane's body one day at the storage unit. He accidentally trips this alarm at the storage unit, so he couldn't get in, right? And that's the mm. only time that he goes back to his house and he accesses one of the death fetish websites because he can't actually go and see Jane's body in person. He actually went home and looked at necrobabes. And I'm, <sighs> and I know what I think that means, but what do you think that means? That is such a strong evidence to me that he was acting out his necrophilia fantasies with Jane in that storage unit for the whole month. And that's incredible to that they were able to find those records and like match them up with his internet search history. Like it absolutely gives me chills. That's not a coincidence that he was locked out of the storage unit that day and chose to go back to the websites after taking a significant break from them after the day she was murdered. That is just, it disgusts me that he was using her body in that way. Like he, I'm sure that this was like the pinnacle of excitement, you know, a culmination of years of fantasizing, he finally had gotten himself a necro babe. It's just so gross. Oh, it's awful. It's awful for her family. But, you know, he kept this up with her. I mean, he kept her as his own personal plaything, so to speak, until uh, Saturday, April 19th. And that's when, you know, you mentioned earlier smell had gotten so strong at the storage unit he was forced to move her i think he was afraid he was going to get caught and you know what he does next is really really beyond anything that i think most people can imagine he he takes this decomposing body of jane and he takes her 20 miles from brighton out to a wooded area he sets her body on fire and he leaves her and just like she didn't mean anything to anybody and just the complete disregard for life. It's sad. It's, it's, and it's really disturbing. Sets her body on fire. And a few moments later, a man named Daniel Fowler was driving by and he saw the fire. And um, it's reported that he noticed the flames were what he called a weird color. And he pulled over and called firefighters. He left, but as he drove off, the firefighters ran after him and stopped him. And they told him that the fire was a body, not just a regular fire. And that he would need to be a part of the police report because that's, you know, that's a huge discovery. And everything that had happened to Jane, you know, being in that storage unit, you know, decomposing there and then being set on fire. Her body, as you can imagine, was just in an awful condition. I, I hate that for her family. So they weren't easily able to identify her. They had to use dental records, which is often common in, in those kind of cases where there's been such extreme trauma to the body. And officials were able to later determine that Jane's cause of death was strangulation. Wow, that must have been a devastating day for her family after about five weeks of everyone just looking everywhere for her. And when you were speaking about 
him just being able to dump her there like and set her on fire like she was nothing it just it blows my mind that these two were friends that they went on double dates he probably had to hear about her this whole time at home from lisa his girlfriend and i just can't imagine the kind of person who could do this and not not feel anything i think it's important to point out as well that in many murder investigations you will see that the murderer you know, kills somebody that they know, they often will do different things with the body that will indicate that they cared, cover it up, maybe with a sheet or a blanket, or they'll bury the body, or, or there'll be some other things that they do to indicate that there was some level of, hey, I knew this person and I have some remorse for what I did. But it takes a very special person to know somebody and kill them and to not care and he did not care i mean he lit jane's body on fire and that is that is gruesome and that does show the level of detachment i believe that graham had from reality and from humanity i agree it's really hard to imagine his original story about things being consensual and about him being a caring guy who wanted to soothe this crying emotional woman I just don't buy that at all after seeing and hearing about this. Taking us back to that wooded area, her body being discovered, they were obviously treating that area as a crime scene. And the team did discover that Jane had died around the time that she went missing and when they did the autopsy. So that let them know at that point when they found her that her killer had kept her body that whole time somewhere. And at the scene of the body dump, police did also find a piece of cardboard and they could see that it was part of a moving box. It had the word fragile on it. And so that was collected as evidence. Of course, they were wondering if she was kept in a box or, or what that really meant. They weren't sure of at that time. But this just set the case on fire. The police were determined at this point. They had new evidence. They wanted to just really solve this case. So they started to go back through all the details of the case. And they were paying special attention to those first 48 hours of her disappearance again. They were revisiting all the statements they'd taken from people who had spoken to Jane on her last day of a normal life. And so that means that they reread the interview that they had with Graham. When they looked over it again after a few weeks had passed, they did feel like it was a really vague interview and that he had been vague about the conversation that they had on the phone. He didn't recount many details. They also felt that his report about what else he had done after the call, they asked him what he did that day. They they just saw that he didn't give many details on that either. And they started to feel a little bit troubled about the vagueness of the entire interview. So they decided to go to his flat and interview him again. And... When they arrived at his place, Graham was friendly. He let them inside and was just acting normal at first. 
And they looked over and noticed in the corner of the room that Graham had a big pile of cardboard boxes and they all had the word fragile on them. And they just looked exactly like the box at the scene of the body dump. Wow. Yes. So police were, they definitely had their spidey senses going on. They became very suspicious of Graham at that point when they saw those boxes. And they asked Graham to let them know what he was doing on the night that the body got dumped in the woods. And they said that his demeanor shifted really drastically. He became very edgy. He seemed nervous. He was uh, dodging their questions. He was giving them more vague answers again. He did say that he was out on a home delivery route working. So I guess he was doing some delivery job at that point. So they asked him to produce receipts that would have timestamps from that delivery route. And he usually had receipts from all his routes and days, and he could not find any from that day. He just kept giving them piles of receipts that had the wrong day on it. And so they kept being like, no, this isn't what we're looking for. And so they just decided to go ahead and arrest him on the spot because they felt like he he was lying to them and the boxes were had made them very suspicious. Felt excited learning that they were just going to go ahead and arrest him. And that made them able to seize all of his belongings and his car. When they opened his car, they noticed that the trunk smelled like a decomposing body. Now, despite all of this, they still did not have concrete evidence linking him directly to Jane. So they had to release him, even though he was the number one suspect. That blows my mind. Yeah. They couldn't prove right then that the boxes were the same from his house and the crime scene. And they could not prove that the smell from his trunk hadn't been from an animal or something. They had no way to link him to Jane's murder, even though they knew that they were friends and that he had spoken to her that day. Two days after they released him, the manager of the storage unit that Graham had used called the police. He called in a tip. Oh, wow. He had no idea that the person renting that storage unit knew Jane, but he just called to say that he felt a little suspicious of a customer that he had. And he explained to them that there was a customer who had recently rented a ground floor storage unit. And he said that this customer was acting really strange. He said that he found it very odd that this man was constantly returning to his storage unit for weeks and weeks in a row. And he explained too, like, I'm in the storage unit business. It is not normal for somebody to be going into their storage unit so often. Usually people put their stuff away and they don't come back for it. So he said he noticed right away that this guy was visiting really frequently. It was important to him that he had a ground level storage unit and then there was a smell coming from the storage unit, and it, it was getting stronger and stronger, almost unbearable. And at that point, the smell just went away completely. It disappeared over the weekend that Jane's body was found in the woods. So this storage unit manager saw the news about Jane's body being found, and he connected the dots in his mind about this stinky storage unit with the, the strange man. Wow. I mean, that's impressive. His involvement is, is huge because it does connect the dots, and it does start to tell a story. I mean, 
thank goodness he came forward. Yeah, what an intelligent man. So he called them and he was like, I'm calling. I want to talk about Jane Longhurst. I need to know if the smell out of this unit was her body. I think that it could have been. The police, of course, were so thankful for this tip. They followed up with it immediately. They went down to the storage unit. They started going through the uh, the CCTV footage there. And the owner of the storage unit was able to give them that footage and he told them that his customer was named Paul Kelly. But when they started going through the footage, they discovered that like plain as day, it was Graham Coots. You could see very clearly that it was him. Oh my goodness. I mean, that's the, that's the evidence they need right there then. I mean, that's enough to go back and get him, right? Yes, they were able to arrest him because they had footage of him going in and out of the storage unit and they were able to get a warrant to look in the storage unit. And inside the storage unit, Graham had left Jane's clothing, her bank card, her phone, and the clothes that they both were wearing that day, including that t-shirt with the blood on it that I talked about earlier. The t-shirt also had semen on it and there was a condom in the storage unit that had been used. You know what he was doing in the storage unit. Yeah, he, he that evidence was pretty telling, and I think he was screwed from that point on. He was arrested. He was confronted with the evidence they had found. And when they told him that they had video footage of him going to that storage unit, that they found Jane's stuff in there, he just hung his head in his hands, and he didn't want to talk. He wouldn't give a confession. He just said, sorry, I can't talk about it. Uh why can't he talk about it? He can't or he won't? Yeah, it seems more like won't to me. He ended up pleading not guilty. And during the trial, he did stick to that story that we talked about earlier, that it was all a consensual accident. During the trial, he said that he had wanted to call 911, but then he realized that it looked really bad and that he better just cover this up because nobody would understand And he even uses Lisa, his pregnant girlfriend, as a shield. He tells people that he couldn't call 911 or try to get help for Jane because then Lisa might get stressed out and miscarry the baby. Oh, that's just him not taking accountability. And that makes the situation even worse, if you ask me. I mean, he's just willing to to use his girlfriend and his unborn child to try to protect his sick need to commit acts of necrophilia. That makes it even worse. I mean, I'm sorry. Graham Coots is a scumbag. Yeah, the prosecution felt the same. They had a very hard time believing him. They believe that his story was total BS. They believe that Jane was invited over and that Graham had every intention of killing her before he got her in a private area. They believe that he attacked her from behind. They believe that he manually strangled her to death and then placed the tights around her neck and removed her clothing and continued to play with her like that. And they do have that evidence that not only did this happen while she was alive, but that he was having sex with her dead body in that storage unit. That's what they believe was happening. A complete and total immersion into his lifelong fantasy of necrophilia. And I just, I can't help but think two things. One is how how horrible this is for Jane's family. I mean, she's murdered, but not just murdered. I mean, the terrible things that happened to her post-mortem is awful. 
I can't imagine the family having to endure that knowledge. And I think the second part is the fact that he was so involved in these death fetish websites that you and I both know these fetishers claim that this is innocent. It's just fantasy. They compare it to Disney, you know, Disney characters and that get killed. And, and really, it's anything but innocent. These sites are promoting and encouraging murder and necrophilia. These sites are so encouraging. They are, I would even say they normalize this fetish. They make it comfy and cozy for these people to escalate their fantasizing. And as we discussed before, Graham spent hours the day before, almost two hours in total, on this website. And that's what we have proof of. We don't know what he was doing in his mind without the computer, but it paints a pretty big picture that at the point where he finally did follow through with these fantasies, he was already spending hours on those sites fantasizing about this, thinking about it for hours and hours a day. I think that that is a strong evidence that there's an escalation process that very well can end in murder as a result of normalizing these fantasies and having a group of people where you feel comfortable talking about this, maybe even celebrated talking about this. And I think it's a dangerous thing to start viewing those thoughts and ideas as normal and healthy. And I do really feel for Jane's family and all this too. I think that it must have been devastating to learn that that had happened to her. And Jane's mother, uh, Liz Longhurst, has been pretty public with her grieving journey. I did find this quote from Jane's mom that just shatters my heart. And again, her name is Liz Longhurst. So she's quoted saying, My daughter Jane was murdered by a man who spent hours searching for the most hideous, explicit, and extreme websites on the internet. Had it not been for the ease with which he could access violent pornography, then Jane would, I believe, still be alive. The extreme websites opened up an arena for him to explore his desires. They told him that his dark fantasies were shared by others and were somehow normal. Oh, my heart is broken for for Jane's mother. But, I, you know, her mother is right. Liz is correct. I mean, these websites are a game changer for people like Graham Coots who have a predisposition for murder. Let's just call it what it is. This is something that he'd been thinking about doing since he was 15 years old. Mm -hmm. And these websites do fuel that fire. You know, he's not seeking out websites that are helping him cope with this obsession to rape, murder, and participate in necrophilia. I mean, he is searching out and participating in sites that tell him, hey, link arms with us. This is great. It's normal. It's okay. We all want to do it. Here's a safe place to act that out. Those sites are irresponsible. It's irresponsible and dangerous to fuel those motives. Uh, any of them. Rape, murder, necrophilia, torture, hanging. I mean, I could go on and on. I am, I am fired up about this. These sites have got to go. 
Yeah, I want them gone. What I would like to see is a world where someone like Graham Coots exists and they go to the computer and they type in necrophilia and they get links about how that's a mental disorder. How, you know, I want somebody looking up necrophilia sex videos to be met online with a bunch of specialists. I want them to seek mental health care. That's what I want somebody to find when they look that up. I want them to find that it's in the diagnostics manual. There should not be content like this when you put in those search terms. There should be something that would help people with this problem. Absolutely. You're right. And the websites that Graham was utilizing, you know, they've come up over and over and over in our investigation into the death fetish community. These are sites that are prominent. I mean, necrobabes very prominent. And it was one of the very first death fetish websites to exist. It launched in 1998. And thank God it shut down in 2014. One of the founders of Necrobabes is a man named Peter. He's still, you know, he's still an active member of the death fetish community. I mean, just think about that. He's been doing that for what, almost 30 years. That's a long time. I'd be worried about Peter, too. What's Peter doing in his community? That's right. Peter's currently selling his death fetish videos and photos on different websites, particularly a place called nicheclips.com. It's a gated hosting website that allows a death fetish member to buy videos with cryptocurrency. So they're, you know, they're, they're taking measures to you know, protect themselves as much as possible while they promote such horrific and graphic glorification of these crimes and you know there's a another site we mentioned hanging there's death by asphyxia and necrobabes those three have all shut down or they've changed their names since the murder of jane longhurst i want to say that again for our listeners they shut down or they changed their names since that murder you know they scattered like cockroaches in the sunlight they know yeah, because they're terrified of any attention on them They know that what they're doing is dangerous, it's wrong, that it's linked to real murders and real communities. And so they did, yeah, they had to change their names or shut down. They were terrified that somebody would kick the door open and actually start looking at their whole community. Yeah, they know. They know that it's wrong and that it's dangerous. In fact, they know, but they want to continue on, right? So hanging for example, they rebranded as something called AnsDream.com. And AnsDream.com is owned by a man who goes by the moniker Big John. And Big John, I'm kind of mocking his name. He likes to buy up death fetish production companies. I think he's got 12. I believe that's correct. 12 production companies. And he operates out of a different country. He's in Hungary, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And that says a lot about him. I think he's in hiding for the things that he does and tries to stay where he could be relatively untouchable. That's my opinion. Big John, if you're listening, if you listen to this, we invite you to come on our show. We'd love to talk to you if you have something different to say than what we are presenting. But it's my opinion that he's hiding. He's hiding out because he doesn't want to get caught. Yeah. And he certainly wouldn't want to be in the UK after what Liz Longhurst did. And she's a hero. Liz Longhurst, I mean, loved her daughter beyond measure. And after her death, 
Liz went on to petition for law changes in the UK. Just phenomenal, amazing woman. She ran a two-year-long campaign and was successful in getting a ban on the viewing of violent pornography in 2009. Believe it or not, more than 50,000 people signed a petition supporting her. So that's telling that there's 50,000 people that joined with her. And I believe that there are others out there who would also want to join along to say that this is wrong and horrible and we don't want it to exist. There's something very profound also that I want to share that Liz is quoted as saying. And and she says that my daughter Sue and myself are very pleased that after 30 months of intensive campaigning, we have persuaded the government to take action against these horrific internet sites, which can have such a corrupting influence and glorify extreme sexual violence. And she's right. It is a corrupting influence. It does glorify extreme sexual violence. And it resulted in the murder of her daughter, Jane. Because of that murder, Liz goes on and, and does all this work. And the ban that she was successful in having implemented against this violent pornography became part of the criminal justice and immigration bill and anyone that was caught with sexually violent images in the UK could face up to three years in jail which I think that's, that's amazing. amazing I would like to see that be the norm yeah the, I I truly believe that that's the direction we're heading here for the United States that's where we're located so we're going to try to make sure that we get the ball rolling on those kinds of bans and law changes for us too I think it's critical. I think it's also important to note that the British Psychological Society backed the government's proposals of this ban on violent pornography. And they cited, you know, developing research that suggested that individuals who were predisposed, remember we used that word earlier, to commit violent or other sexual offenses might become more likely to do so when exposed to such material. It's that predisposition. Graham Coots had that predisposition for murder, and he had had it for most of his life. Just because he admitted it when he was 15, I, I believe it had been going on much longer in his mind at that point, probably for, for many, many years before he really understood his sexuality and other things. I think that just it was part of his psyche. I'm really thankful when I hear that. Uh, what you just said about the British Psychological Society. I love that they are doing research right now about this specific topic, and I can't wait to see what the findings are there. It makes me really happy that somebody is looking into this and wanting to know how much of an impact it has on people who are predispositioned to think this way. They're not the only ones. You know, the British psychological society and the government and Liz Longhurst and others and you know the 50,000 people who who signed the petition and, and and us now all these years later we're we're not the only ones that are watching these types of cases i think it's important to understand that the death fetish community is also watching hmm. and they discuss this in their forums and if if i may i know we're we're wrapping up for today this is one of our longer episodes but i really wanted to share that you know, there's a user called Max5S, and he had this to say in one of the forums. He said, we really don't know who, if anyone, is likely to take serious issue with us. But the more extreme we go, the easier a target we become. This I love. It's almost like he knew that Alicia and LaDonna were someday going to come on the scene. <laughs> 
because he says a U.S. version of Jane Longhurst using Sarah Brady's tactics could conceivably accomplish here what was done in the U.K. Yes, Max 5S, you're right. It's almost a prophecy. He prophesied us into reality. So you take a look at the Max Hardcore case. It wasn't sex that got him in trouble. He goes on to say it was sex plus violence and the humiliation of the victims that brought about the obscenity conviction. And as a result, I think that the mixing of hardcore sex and violence increases the risk that some overzealous assistant U.S. attorney or a concerned citizen, insert names LaDonna and Alicia, (laughs) or legislator might effectively shut our, our industry down. How many senators and representatives would you realistically expect to vote against a bill presented as action against violent pornography? It's a question that frequently crosses my mind, and I fear that the answer is very few. Ooh, that is a compelling quote. Absolutely. And another user, Peter, he was the creator of Necrobabes. He, he said this, I believe it's only a question of time before some crusader ends us all and some of us go to prison. I'm frankly <laughs> surprised that it has not happened yet. Max Hardcore was nothing compared to some of the death fetish producers' current fare. Wow. Wow. I think his words are prophetic. I think there's going to be some death fetish producers, consumers that go to prison, ultimately, because they're going to be exposed. Can you believe that? Like, I just have to go back. Some crusader ends us all and some of us go to prison. He's just telling it like it is. So they know. They know that they're going to go to prison someday over some of these things that they're creating. They absolutely do. And I would I would love to be a part of, you know, that movement. I hope this podcast is a part of that movement to expose what's happening within the death fetish community and to ultimately help lock the prison doors on the people that need to be behind bars. And I think that's part of our path forward. And we've been thrust into this work. And so we won't stop doing it until we get a result much like Liz Longhurst. We will post updates about what we're doing in terms of laws in different states and in the entire U.S. And those can be followed and accessed on any of our social media accounts on our website, which is deepdarksecretspodcast.com. If you want to sign a petition, if you want to join us in this work, please reach out to us. Uh, We would love to hear from people and and we want to join up in numbers and make this happen for the United States. So thank you so much for listening today. And we do hope that you'll join us next week as we expose the secrets of another death fetish producer. Next week, we're going to be talking about Chris Corner from Oregon. As always, if you have a deep, dark secret about your community that you'd like us to expose, feel free to reach out to us and tell us all about it at deepdarksecretspodcast at gmail.com. And friends, if you're interested in exclusive content from our investigative work, head on over to Patreon. And remember, keep your lights on.